This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. A second space age is emerging, according to my guest today, Noah Popinick, who in a recent Goldman Sachs research report called Space, The Next Investment Frontier. Noah is here today to tell us what's reinvigorating the industry after all these years and what the surge in new space activity could mean for the economy here on Earth. Noah, welcome to the program. Jake, thanks a lot for having me. So let's start with this idea of space being the next big investment frontier. What do you mean exactly by that? Maybe I'll speak a little bit to our process and how we ultimately arrived at that conclusion. So we cover aerospace and defense within investment research. In your day job. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so the 20 companies we cover, a dozen or so of them, have some space business. But as a percentage of the total business for most companies I cover, space isn't particularly large. So we've always known the space market. We've always looked at the space market. We've studied it. We've done the work on it. But we've never looked at it the way we look at commercial aircraft fundamentals or the defense budget or things more kind of core to that day job that you referenced. But separately, we're always looking for new markets, longer-term investment opportunities, ways to think outside of the box, think bigger picture if we can. In fact, this report is part of a series that our research division did called Profiles in Innovation, which is really a broader effort to look for those bigger picture, long-term opportunities across all markets. And many of those other reports could be called uh, new investment frontiers. And so with what we knew about space and what we sort of saw was going on outside of our coverage, you know, especially in the private world, we had a feeling that there was a lot of investment opportunity in space. So we really dug in with this effort. And, you know, I'd say my single biggest takeaway from doing this is really there's so much more going on here than I would have thought or that I think the average investor realizes. When you look at how much privatization is going on in space, how much is moving into the commercial world, how many really big, interesting tech players are really pushing hard. And also, you know, in the classic government and civil market, the potential for NASA to be reinvigorated and also just the huge dollar spend that's there in the military really a lot of opportunity, a lot of new investors putting a lot of real dollars here. And so ultimately, we do think it is a new investment frontier. And then, of course, also a nice play on the uh, famous William Shatner uh, Star Trek opening credits. Not lost on me. Yes. So it sounds like a lot of the new interest and activity hinges on falling launch costs. So what's driving the decline there? And break down where you're seeing the changes. If you think about it very simplistically, in order to have activity in space, you have to get to space. And so launch is just super critical. And one could easily imagine that the cost of developing, manufacturing, and actually performing rocket launch into outer space would be pretty expensive. And so a lot of the bigger players here make comments like the cost of admission is too high to play and things like that. And it's true. That's why it was the province of governments for a year. That's only, exactly right. only those who are willing to spend big public money for the research capability. Exactly right. Now, there's been this wave of those that are well capitalized outside of the government world that have been pushing into here. And whether it's for personal reasons that they have or because they just see the investment opportunity. And so, you know, when you look at the SpaceX's and the Blue Origins of the world, who are really the big known private players in launch. They are just innovating like crazy and really pushing the envelope. And between what they've done and what others have done, cost of materials, cost of manufacturing, on a kilogram to low Earth orbit basis, prices for launch have come down about 90% over a decade, which is just incredible. So 
those costs have been coming down. I think they'll continue to come down. Another really big part of that conversation, and it pertains back to those two companies I mentioned in the private world, is reusability. It's a huge focus point in terms of what's going on in this industry. And basically that is launching something into space on a rocket and then bringing the rocket back down to Earth and landing it. I mean, over the past sort of, you know, 18, And that wasn't the way the government was operating. No. It's basically never been done until the past. I mean, it's almost like still never been done. Like basically in the last 18 months, you've had your first ever landings. You've had a few successful landings. A lot of that has just been in testing. And actually in March of this year, SpaceX had the first ever successful relaunch, taking a satellite back up on a rocket that had been used before. Those two companies have been talking about it for a while, but it's really brand new in real life and practice and a huge thing to focus on in terms of launch going forward. But yeah, launch has been really the biggest bucket of innovation and a huge critical component of what's going to happen here going forward because it's how you actually get up to this economy. So what are the risks, if there are any, to these falling launch costs? There's a ton of risk in something that's this technologically sophisticated. There's failures all the time. There's investors who look at companies that launch and say, I'll follow this company and just wait for the inevitable failure, and then I'll look at an investment opportunity after that. It's reasonably common. And obviously, um, the failures get a lot of attention. They get a lot of attention. Right. Yeah, that's right. And so when you're pushing the envelope on the edge of technology and capability, you're more likely to have failures, which is hard to do. And so there's a lot of risk in getting it right, especially something like reusability. There's also risk, actually, also in just volume and overhead absorption. Like you're trying to do something that's a more expensive process or a more expensive technique and you're not getting the repetition out of it. If there's not enough customers that want to do it a lot, the model doesn't necessarily work. So I think the total volume is a risk and absolutely reliability. Sometimes the payload that you're putting on one of these is so insanely expensive that if there's a 2% chance of failure, it's just it's zero. too much. It's not right, worth it. Right. Let's get into some of the cool stuff. Exploration. What can we expect now that the costs of getting to space are lower than ever. You mentioned asteroid mining, which is one thing that's caught the public's attention. Are these viable business models? First of all, uh, asteroid mining has probably had more incoming questions per pages attributed to it in the report of anything in the, in the report. There's something about it. That, <laughs> yeah. yeah. These reports of world economic collapse as commodity prices fall. Right, and right. like, yeah. Absolutely not our intent to have that view. And in fact, for me, when we first started studying asteroid mining, I thought, that can't be. But when you realize how many really serious scientists and really serious investors are absolutely looking at it, then you realize it could be real. What's the basic idea? The initial idea is actually not, I'm going to go into space and find all these riches and take them back and keep them. The initial idea is actually that you can create little bodies of places to go for things you need while you're in space. So rocket fuel is really water kind of manipulated. That's extremely simplistic, but it's water in its base. And asteroids have a ton of water. And so if you have something in space and you want to take it elsewhere in space and it just needs to be refueled, if you could have something where you're mining that water out of an asteroid and then you can refuel the thing that needs to be refueled without having to bring it all the way back down or without having to send something else up, you can have these sort of little mini gas stations in space that's much more economical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's also an energy angle to it as well that's discussed because the moon has helium-3, and it turns out that helium-3 is a non-radioactive form of nuclear power. And so there's discussions out there about just bringing a tiny bit of that back to the Earth and it being an extremely substantial clean energy source. So 
there's a bunch of different elements to that. A lot of that is super long-term, though. Yeah. So beyond asteroid mining, what are some of the other places that we may see new exploration? For a while now, there's been a decent amount of discussion about the space tourism market. The cost for that had been astronomically high for a long time. Still quite high, but has come down significantly. And so the sort of major players in that bucket are talking about being able to take everyday citizens into space for, call it, $200,000. Still a very high number, but something that I think we'll see a not insignificant amount of the population look to do. That doesn't really get you that far into space. The discussion is around 100 kilometers above Earth. And so it gets you the feeling of being in space, the weightlessness of space. You look back, you see the image of the Earth, but you're not going to the moon. We think that over the next decade or two becomes more real. Another one that, uh, that I think can be reasonably real, reasonably soon, and where there's a, a couple big players that are, sound very serious about the size of it much longer term is in-orbit manufacturing. And so there are multiple private players who have said that they think a lot of the Earth's manufacturing should be done in space for a number of reasons. And now having a lot of heavy manufacturing in space seems hard to do and seems like a ways off, which is probably the case. But there are interim steps to that that are pretty interesting. So there are companies that are working on satellite servicing offerings where everything is done in space. Satellites running out of fuel needs to be refueled. You can actually just refuel it in space and have the service life extended. And there are also companies that actually have funding from NASA, from DARPA, the DOD research agency, to sort of launch all the raw materials of manufacturing a satellite product into space and then build it while you are in space. And the logic there being, if you build a satellite on the ground on Earth, it's a very meticulous, uh, intricate process, and you've made an extremely expensive asset. And so you got to be really careful when you launch it, and it's pretty big and spread out, and so it's a tough launch. Versus if you just take all the raw materials and pack them really neatly in a concise way, and then you launch that as is into space, you could launch that at a substantially lower cost. It's easier to get through the Earth's atmosphere in the early part of launch while you're doing that. And then you would actually build it in space. And that's something that currently has a little bit of funding from NASA and DARPA. So, you know, those are two other ones beyond the mining discussion that we covered in the report and that I think are probably more real sooner than mining. When we grew up, certainly, NASA was the big player here in the United States, other space agencies around the world. This was their exclusive province. What role do you see for that old guard in the new space age? Can legacy launch and exploration giants stay relevant? Yeah. To me, it's really hard to envision a period of time in my lifetime and really well beyond that NASA doesn't exist and is not significantly relevant you know, NASA obviously has a focus on space, but NASA is also really a research and a science organization. And if you go on the NASA website and look at their discussion of what they plan to do next, there's a lot of discussion of going to Mars. There's a lot of discussion of going back to the moon, a lot of discussion of what they want to do with the International Space Station. But there's also a lot of discussion of what they want to do in aerospace and what they want to do with air traffic control and what they want to do with material science and what they want to do with climate change. They're really focused on a lot more than just space. But I think NASA is here to stay in near deep manned, unmanned space exploration. You kind of need that government partner. And in terms of the old guard, if you will, in terms of the older players, back to that question you asked on the risks in something like launch, the reliability of the guys that have been there for a while versus the new private players is going to keep them 
very viable in the market for a really long period of time. And also, you know, government and military work they're doing keeps coming their way. And so there's definitely a ton of innovation, a lot happening in the private world, but there is absolutely a place for the old guard. You know, the other point I would make on NASA too is the budget matters. The NASA budget has actually been under considerable pressure for a long time. The NASA yeah, budget man. has declined in real dollars for decades. And it's declined as a percentage of federal outlays like every year for 30 years. The new administration is discussing reversing that, but their numbers aren't really showing it. So in the fiscal 18 budget request that the new administration just put out, they had NASA down 1%. I think part of that change is intentional because as a government, you have to decide if you want to encourage that privatization or not. But I think part of it is also arguably the nation sort of taking its eye off the ball of this really important thing. And so we'll see what politicians are able to do to reverse that funding trend for NASA because they need the money to stay relevant. So I was surprised when reading the report to learn just how much space exploration research has contributed to everyday life. Can you share a couple examples from the report that might not occur to people? We've all heard of powdered drinks and the like. Maybe yeah. they came out from astronauts. But what are some of the less well-known things that have come out of the space program? You know, it was a NASA engineer who first proposed to shoe companies to have cushioned soles in running and workout shoes. They were working with the material for something totally unrelated, and then they realized that it worked there. There was a project. So Air Jordans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or, or like or, the, or the old school uh, pumps. Yeah. <laughs> You know, another good example is there was a NASA project where they were taking these random forms of algae that they thought could actually create oxygen to give you oxygen in space. And they stumbled across the fact that these algae had this random type of fatty acid that happened to be exactly what you need when you are feeding as an infant. And so they incorporated that into baby food. And so like that now exists in baby food. And so a lot of people attribute baby food to NASA. So there's a bunch of examples like that that seems sort of silly and random, but really what it is, is NASA is constantly investing, exploring, innovating, and they come up with these things. You know, the other thing I would say too is not really specific to NASA, but just so much of your everyday life runs through space without you thinking about it. Like automatic toll booths, your credit card authorizations, when you use an ATM machine, obviously if you're using satellite radio or satellite TV, GPS, so much that you do every day that you are not thinking about is running through space. And the commercial side, the commercialization yeah. of space, which is invisible, largely. Right. So obviously as space gets privatized, it draws investors in. Some of the investors are just deep-pocketed people who are passionate about space. But there's some venture capital money, people looking for real returns in too. Having taken a look at this, what trends can you point to where the money's going and how do you see that evolving over time? We dug deep into that to sort of see what's happening here from an investment perspective. We teamed up with Heath Terry, who I know has been on the pod before, who's uh, our internet analyst in the research division. And his team actually separately has recently come out with a really cool, broader look at the venture capital landscape that they're calling Venture Capital Horizons. In the last two full years, there was a little over a billion dollars each year put into space VC which is small relative, obviously, to that total world. But in every year prior to 2014, there had never been more than $125 million put into space. And, you know, it's something like 75, 80% of, like, all VC activity in space from the last 20 years was in the last three or four. So any of the charts you're looking at are just straight up and to the right, and there's been a real concentration of investment activity in the last handful of years compared to the last handful of decades. 
And so there's something real in here. Something is going on that is bringing real money to the space. And if you believe in follow the money to find the clues, it's coming into this market in a hurry. What trends are you seeing about where that money is going and what are investors looking for to get returns? There's a pretty diverse set of sub-markets that we're seeing private money or VC money look at. Back to how much we discussed the significance of launch, launch is by far the biggest place you're seeing money go. There's been private placements into SpaceX, and there's a lot of other smaller launch operations. One of them, you know, for example, is offering shared payloads where you can literally go onto their website and sign up to have your payload go up on one rocket with other people's payloads. So the shared economy for launch. There's a number of different things in launch. The other big one is in the satellite market. Small satellite constellations are a big growth area in the market and are seeing a lot of VC money. And the concept there is lighter weight, easier to manufacture, easier to maintain, less costly if you lose one, more flexible, able to put them in different places to get different coverages, whether for communications or imaging, versus the traditional, you know, very large one asset. The miniaturization of space, essentially. Exactly. Speaking of money, another place where there has been a lot of investment in space is in the sort of military side of space. And there's been a little bit of writing about the militarization of space. How has space become a core pillar of the U.S. strategy? And what role do the big defense contractors that you cover in your day job play in that space? No yeah. pun intended. Yeah, yeah, no, I actually struggle <laughs> with that a lot. Because, <laughs> you know, you say space in reference to a sector or an end market. And so it's a tricky one. A lot of what we've discussed thus far is commercial, private, obviously NASA being civil, when a lot of the report is focused on the commercial and the private world, because that's where a lot of the rapid innovation is happening and the really long-term outsized investment opportunities lie. But today, as we speak, the military is really one of the larger and more visible and measurable pools of capital available in the space market. The U.S. military has significantly more of its assets in space than people realize. And yeah. the military, to be fair, has always been a, an innovator. The U.S. military has oh, yeah. embraced technology early. And so sometimes 100%. we look at what they're doing and we're all going to be doing it in five or ten yeah. years. That's yeah. absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I mean, similar to how we were discussing NASA specific to space, the military is, sort of has that element to it in a more broader sense, including space. But that's absolutely true. But, you know, it's also just the case that ruggedized communication systems speak to each other through space. Drones that are flying around collecting data are sending it back via space. Just a lot of the infrastructure and the assets kind of run through space. And so the DOD and all the three-letter agencies combined have a lot of assets in space. And so if you look at just what's spent on that per year, a decent amount of it's classified. So it's a little tricky to unearth the data. But it looks like about 20 to $25 billion a year is spent by DOD and the Intel world on space. That's a big number relative to the defense budget. If you look at the Air Force, the Air Force has a disclosed total classified budget that's about $30 billion. The Air Force spends $15 billion a year on disclosed, not classified aircraft. So the 30 that's classified, it's not all space. But if you look at things the Air Force says, a healthy chunk of that is space. So if we say 10 of that is space... You know, you can sort of, you can sort of kind of the size of the military, like the Air Force. What does the Air Force buy besides, you know, airplanes? Well, apparently Um, a lot of apparently, yeah, (laughs) that's exactly right. So, um, you know, those numbers were were really surprising to us. So, there's a lot already spent, and then you know, the other piece of it is if you look at things that Pentagon leadership is saying, 
And a fun Google exercise for listeners is Googling Air Force Chief of Space Command 60 Minutes because he actually went on 60 Minutes and revealed a decent amount of what's going on. And the punchline of it is a lot of our near-peer adversaries that we perhaps thought couldn't get to these assets where learning can get to these assets. And so there's also this race of space asset protection that we think is going on. That's getting back to the defense companies we cover. That could end up being a pretty important part of some of the companies we so, cover. So part of the strategy is essentially a response to what other countries are trying to do in the, in Absolutely. the space area. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, to wrap up, paint a little picture of what space could look like two decades from now. Should your prediction of the industry's growth come true? The reality is there's a very wide range of potential outcomes with almost everything we've covered individually. You know, I think first and foremost, NASA is alive and vibrant. But I do think we really just continue to hear more and more about these big, well-capitalized, really serious, really ambitious private players becoming a larger and larger piece of the puzzle. I think we see a lot of rockets landed and reused. I think we take a lot of steps towards Mars. NASA has a plan to be at Mars by 2030, so that's within 20 years. Um, Manned or unmanned? Manned, in terms of exactly who's stepping foot onto the planet, is a different question. Because sometimes they lay out the plans in terms of where they want to literally be standing, and sometimes they lay them out in terms of what they want to be orbiting. And also with something that is that far away, the plan and the time frame will change. But NASA has a multi-tiered plan to go to Mars, and they will make a lot of progress on that over the next 20 years. Same thing with the moon. There are a lot of plans in place. SpaceX says they will be orbiting tourists around the moon within like 24 months' time. Now, you know, many entities in this arena have had timeline slip, but they're saying that. I think there will almost be a race between NASA and the most serious private players with regard to Mars plans and moon plans. Because if you're NASA and a private player starts to get ahead of your timeline, then you have to debate whether or not it's worth you spending that money or they're not right. in the space tourism business, but they right. want to show that they are at least ahead of the curve. Otherwise, their very existence gets called into question. That's right. right. Yeah. I think some version of asteroid mining, you know, particularly with regard to that water for fuel point that we're making, will exist. Space tourism will be a real thing. You know, the pricing that's being talked about there now is feasible for a decent amount of the Earth's population. You know, I think lastly, I would say, I think we're going to see in 20 years' time a lot of investors having made really nice returns in a lot of these really early stage markets. Interesting. Noah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Stewart. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was recorded on May 3rd, 2017. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. 
The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.